afternoon. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today Eric Bogosian is here in the studio. Bad to the bone, um, yeah. as ever, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm bad. I think if somebody saw me walking down the street here in Ann Arbor, they would think, is that Lena Dunham's dad? I think that's how bad I come off as some old middle-aged guy, parental-type person. But once I was... <laughs> Maybe I still am in my fantasies, in some fantasy land in my brain. And isn't it all about the fantasy, Eric? It is. It's all about, it's all about living totally in the moment and pushing the envelope all the time so that you're really here, so you don't miss it, because it's just gonna, it's going by fast. It is fleeting. Actually, we were talking about our memories disappearing. Like, you know you were a college DJ. Yes. At, you know, at Oberlin. But I don't remember what college I went <laughs> <No>. to. <laughs> Because I was too brain damaged in college. They don't seem to do that in college. Do they do that stuff? Well, they do that. Yeah, I know because I'm across the street from some frat where they really work on being brain damaged every weekend. Wow. So you have part of the real story happening. Oh, it's amazing. You know, one one side of the street, you've got the frat house playing the rawest hip hop. I won't quote what they're talking about in this hip hop as loud as possible. The entire campus can hear what's being said. And then, and of course, everyone in this frat is the furthest thing from hip hop style. And then Inside the law quad where I'm living, they'll have like a reunion for old alumni, and they got this Dixieland band playing like. So you got that going, and then you've got the the DMX or whatever it is that's playing across the street. It's great. It's it's a big campus. You got a lot of people here doing a lot of different things. So it's true. And you've been so, and you've been here for. Two, you're going to be here a total of two months, Eric. Yeah, I came right after Labor Day, and I'm in a dorm room, and uh, I have a bicycle and a backpack, and I wander around campus, and I eat pizza, and um, I'm living large. In the, it's kind of weird because it was a long time ago since I lived like this, and it's, it's, it's a funny take me back kind of thing. Hey, but did it's you fantastic. Bring your, did you bring your I'm own here. bike, Eric, or did you? No, is that I rented that it was from provided? the local okay. bike thing. Oh, okay. No, Probably no. just around the corner here. Yeah. And so it's 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 been great. It's been a meditative time for me. I'm finishing this book that I ended up 
uh, writing this huge history book about these Armenian assassins because no one had really written a book about it in English. And um, I, I was going to write a screenplay about these guys. These are real guys that in 1921, after the Armenian genocide, um, this is a long time ago, almost 100 years ago, after the Armenian genocide, they just said, we have to avenge this genocide. And they went and they knocked off all the Turkish leadership who were in charge during World War One. Now, it's kind of an, it's kind of like the end of The Godfather when they just basically keep knocking these guys. They knocked off eight guys, and um, including Talat Pasha and Ver Pasha. These were the guys who ran Turkey during World War One. And um, how did you find this story? Because you said no one has written about it in English. Yeah, well, there was a there was a story that floated around that I didn't even know was a true story. I thought it was some like. Armenian daydream or something. By the way, I'm Armenian, yes, right? Yes. <laughs> so uh, uh, the story was that that there was this Armenian guy, young guy, who had seen Talat in Berlin after the war, realized it was Talat Pasha, the guy that had run the country during the genocide, and he went and got a pistol and he shot him and killed him. And when there was a court, it was a big trial. This is the original story I heard. In the trial, he said, look, I saw my mother get killed right before my eyes. I saw my sister-in-laws get killed. I saw my father get killed. And and the court basically said, look, the guy, he has kind of a right. I mean, he's just was traumatized. And so they said it was kind of temporary insanity, and they cut him loose, and he was acquitted. Now, when I heard this story, I was like, wait, is this a, I never heard this story before, but this, this is a guy named Sogamon Telerian was the guy who did it. So I looked it up, and sure enough, there was a court transcript online. You can actually find it, and all this was true. So I thought this is going to make a great movie. Uh, I mean, I mainly, I never, I don't write history books, and um, I, this is seven years ago, and I was just finishing up a stint on Law and Order, so I had some money in my pocket, and I, I'd been on Law and Order a whole bunch for three years, and I. Um, and I thought, well, I better start researching. But this will make a great movie because the first part will be the actual genocidal period, like in the desert and the people getting killed and stuff, pretty nasty. Then the, the, the second act could be in Berlin and he sees the guy and he tracks him down and he shoots him. And the third act, of course, will be the courtroom trial. So what could be better than that? That'll be a perfect movie. It'll end with him being acquitted. Hooray. So then I start investigating the story, and it turns out that everything he said in, in court was a lie, that he is actually a trained assassin operating out of Watertown, Massachusetts, along with a whole bunch of other assassins, a group of guys numbering about, we don't really know everybody who was involved, 15 to 20 but people. Is, is there a large Armenian population? Because that's where yeah, you were in born, Boston. Yeah, in, in yeah, Massachusetts. In, just outside of Boston, Watertown. And uh, these guys basically sent operatives all over Europe, tracked down all these leaders, killed them, and then they set up this operation in 1919. They did their killings in 21 and 22, and then just went to ground right after that and disappeared. And so the story, there are people who know this story, and there have been some things written about it, but there hadn't been any, like, I'm like, wait a minute, what? What, Really? I mean, and, and so then I started doing research, and the research is very complicated, and I couldn't write it as a screenplay anymore, and I decided to write this book. And the book's coming out in April in Little Brown, which happens to be, I did not plan it this way, but it's the 100th anniversary of the Armenian Genocide, April 2015. And uh, wow. the history department here, of course, because it has to do with history, 
um, the history department in at the University of Michigan had invited me here a year and a half ago to talk about my research. And I came and I made a presentation, which was, believe me, daunting because these guys here are all top history scholars, scholars. and everything. And they listened very carefully and they said, you did a great job. We would like you to come back and work with our department again in the fall of 2014. And so here I am. Now, it turned out that it made sense for me to work with different departments. I mean, because I'm not really a historian. So I'm also working with the the um, screenwriting guys here, the screen arts department, and the Institute of the Humanities. And in fact, the Institute of Humanities, sorry to go on and on like this, but uh, they are going to present, I'm going to do a, kind of a performance tomorrow night, because that's what I'm pretty much known for, these solo things that I do. Um, go to 100monologues.com to see other people doing them, all my actor friends. Um, but anyway, so tomorrow night, Thursday night, 7.30 p.m., that is the 18th, right? Is it the 18th? No, no 16th. the 16th, sorry. The 16th. Thursday the 16th. Thursday the 16th, 7.30 p.m., at the museum, uh, free, and uh, I will be doing a kind of reading performance thing. I don't do these shows anymore. I did them for 20 years off-Broadway in New York, and they were they were very successful, and, and uh, they were a lot of fun. They're kind of, I mean, I don't really, I can't really take the temperature of this town of like what people think is dirty or don't think is <laughs> dirty or blue or whatever you want to call it. But this stuff is blue. So if that's not your cup of tea, if you don't like the F word or you don't like descriptions of bodily excretions and sexual reproduction and body parts and stuff, then you probably shouldn't come. That's not what the show is about, but that's, the, that's that part. Those things will be part of... It's like a scratch of, and sniff, if, basically. Yeah, <laughs> if, if, if you want to know, uh, know what the monologues are themselves, there's a sampler at 100monologues.com. And in, on that website, which is free... Um, a lot of my colleagues, my actor colleagues from New York, some basically they're the best actors in America, uh, all grab one and do one. So Michael Stuhlbarg and Michael Shannon, who are on Boardwalk Empire, or David Zayas, who's on Dexter, or, uh, oh my God, there's so many different people. Um, Josh Charles, who just got killed off in The Good Wife last year. Oh, uh, I was on those episodes, actually. All these guys have contributed. And every week we post a new one, every Tuesday night. So we just posted one last night. And uh, we're going to keep going until oh, there's 100 who, of them. Oh, and whose was that? Who, who last you... night was Danny Mastro Giorgio, who tends to play bad guys. He was actually a bad guy on Gotham this week. It's a new TV show that just started. And he, he, it's actually... It's pretty great. It's pretty great. Dylan Baker is on it. And then some wonderful actresses, too, like um, Jessica Hecht, who was on uh, Breaking Bad this past year. She's, she's one of the best actors in New York. Um, Jennifer all the, Tilly. I just saw oh, her wood. Tilly. Oh, Larry, Jennifer the, Tilly. the Christmas such, tree. Yeah, well, Jennifer and I got to be friends. I, I love what Jennifer does. She actually works with Wally Shawn a lot. And yes. she's really hilarious actress. And people know her from... Her Oscar nomination from a Woody, uh, Woody Allen film, and she uh, bullets over Broadway, but she also is Bride of Chucky and all these other things. <laughs> but what uh, Jennifer Tilly is also a top championship poker player, and I met her through the poker world because I'm sort of into that scene at the moment. And so uh, we became friends out in Vegas, and she – not that I'm a Vegas guy. I'm going to say Las Vegas because I'm not even a Vegas guy. Look at everybody's like laughing in here in the studio. But um, 
At any rate, so the all Liz those things are going, I'm talking very fast because there's a lot of fun things going on right now. I've had a lot of fun here. Um, the campus is kind of daunting because it's so enormous. It's so enormous that these different departments sometimes don't even know what each other is doing vis-a-vis what I'm doing. But um, like the theater guys and the and the movie guys. But um, it's very high standard of work here on the part of the students, which I appreciate. Everybody seems to be working very hard here, and and they focus very hard. Uh, I tend to not like to be around students because they tend to think like, oh, I'm in school, and that means that I'm just going to like coast for a couple of years and goof around, and then when it's over, I'll worry about it. And that doesn't seem to be the culture here. This school's kind of a hard school or something. Is that what it is? <laughs> Yeah. So, <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's all so long ago. I can't remember. Have you so, been visiting classrooms then, too? Uh, I went to this school, uh, a play that they were doing um, about, that they're doing up at the theater department. I've, I just came from a lecture that was a very complex lecture about medieval poetry in Armenia. And I, I, I don't get to as many classes as I like to because, unfortunately, the book was just hitting some very intensive editing that I had to do on it just as I got here. So I've actually been kind of in my room doing a lot of editing and I actually got tendonitis from all the typing and stuff, but we're past that point now. So, and and the book is going to be coming out, you said in April, April, 2015. Yeah. It's called operation nemesis, which was what these guys called themselves operation nemesis. Nemesis of course, uh, is the Greek goddess of righteous vengeance. Mm Mm-hmm. And um, they they did have righteous vengeance. Yeah. I mean, all of these guys had not only committed war crimes, but they had been convicted of war crimes in absentia and condemned to death. And these men went and I, I mean, it's a, it's an interesting moral dilemma of whether a person has a right to go kill a war criminal on his own. What's also interesting is that all of the nemesis killers, except for one, got away free, ended up old men in California. You can find pictures of them hanging out with their arms around each other. And you can say, this guy killed three people, this guy killed two people, this guy killed four people. And they never lost a minute's sleep over it. They, The genocide of the Armenians in um in 1915 and 1916 is one of the most horrible crimes ever committed against one group of humans against another. And um, my family, I didn't even know until I started researching the book, I knew that family members had escaped what had happened over there. But what I didn't know was that I had lost two great grandfathers to the genocide who were rounded up. And well, they must have been killed because they were never seen again. And Armenians are very family. I mean, what people would find themselves afterwards and so, but these guys never showed up again. It was, it was pretty raw. Um, what they did was they basically got all able-bodied men into the army who were Armenian, and then they disarmed them and they killed all of them. That way they could get rid of all the guys that were going to be a problem. They got all the leaders in all the communities and they took them away and they killed them. And then all was left was women and children and old people. And they just marched them through the desert until they died. And the ones who managed to survive ended up in the area that's in the news right now, Derzor, northern Syria, that whole region, which is pretty deserty. And uh, they were sort of collected up in concentration camps and then, in fact, then culled even further. And this was something that the Turkish government did in 1915 and 1916. Um, It's not to say that the Turkish government today, whatever it is, is doing um, 
that I mean, I, I, you know, my what I know about Turkish government today is not as thorough as what I know about what happened. This is then. A, a history book, and this yeah. is a time. A this is a hundred years ago. A story that needs to be told. We're going to take a short break today on the program. Eric Bogosian is here. You've got living writers. I'm T Hetzel. We'll be right back. back if you're just tuning in glad you did because eric bogosian is here he's picking the songs he's um we're actually talking really seriously about history right now um the armenian genocide uh at the hands of the turks in 1914 i should actually correct myself there i shouldn't say turks i should say the ottoman empire because it was still the ottoman empire then you know one of the very different time a very different yeah it's kind of interesting that um the ottoman empire which i I didn't know, I'll be honest, I didn't know anything about Ottoman Empire. I didn't even know really where Armenia was when I started writing this book or World War One or any of this And junk. these are your people. Yeah, but, you know, it's kind of hard to know how that all works because it's a very complicated history. But the Ottoman Empire was around for 600 years, and it... It is. It was the. It was the thing that ran the Middle East for six hundred years up until World War One. So we enter this oil. That is. That is something to think about. Yeah, that's and so a, everything a that's thing. happening now. A lot of things that happen now in that part of the world, and even other parts of the world like Serbia and Bosnia, are things that have to do with the Ottoman Empire. And people, no one seems to even mention it. So Mosul, all this junk, Kurds, all of this has to do with. The, the the Turkish need to try to 
control a very big region, including the Arabs. Arabs and Turks don't get along. Anyway, it's not my job to give a history lesson here, and some of this stuff is in will be in this book. So, the, but the book is about these. Armenian assassins who uh, avenged the Armenian genocide, and it's a true story, and it happened 100 years ago, and the book's going to come out next April, which will be the anniversary of the Armenian genocide. So, I mean, I honestly yeah, we'll, didn't... We'll I, I wouldn't have picked then. myself to be the spokesperson but for this are. particular talk. That it's is, turned out that way. You know, it's, it's very weird. I have this weird um, mark on me. Um, I didn't know growing up that April 24th is the day that is the commemoration day for the Armenian genocide. April 24th is my birthday. And so it's weird. I have this like weird fate thing that said, you may be, you may be a reluctant Armenian. Like I don't speak Armenian. Um, I'm very proud of my roots. I mean, very, 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 very proud. And I loved my grandparents so much. But I'm not as nationalistic as some Armenians are. And yeah, everybody has their... I, I grew up in the suburbs. I was just a suburban knucklehead kid riding around on my bicycle. And then when I was in high school, you know, smoking pot and protesting the war and stuff. I mean, that's that's who I am. But weirdly, and I think this is true for everybody... To look at your roots is to also say this is who I am. And in, with some groups, it's become, you know, of course, if you're like African-American uh, and, and Irish-American, these guys are like really embracing their roots, right? But a lot of people don't. And um, here in the Detroit area, the Armenians here are pretty uh, pretty much a strong and vocal group. And I'm here at the university uh, with a grant that uh, is an Armenian grant for me to be as part of this history department. But um, um, I don't know. I just, I just wasn't – I was a little cool to the whole thing. And then as the years have gone by – it's just it's so rich it's such an amazing history armenians are like the oldest people some of the oldest people on earth uh civilized people uh the, the noah's ark landed on an armenian mountain and they're in the oldest maps in the world have armenia on it so it's it's i mean really as a functioning state it kind of ended in the middle ages and then it came back about 100 years ago um and I've been to Armenia. It's it's, it's fascinating. So Did everybody. Did you take your family, Eric? Did you? Go, no, I was, was there as a researcher. No, I was there because I was on jury for a film festival there, and um, there's a lot of film festivals now. If you're making a movie, you have to get into a film festival, um, and I went, of course, because I wanted to see what it was all about, and it was. It was it was kind of intense. I mean, it's just like when Richard Pryor went to Africa, and everybody was. African and he was like he'd never been somewhere where every it's just normal to be mm. black it's just normal to be Armenian in Armenia but I grew up in a very different set of circumstances I grew everybody I knew looked like you they were whatever you are what are you Irish or something yeah so, Irish English and German Irish, yeah <laughs> so everybody looked like you they all had freckles and stuff and my hair was was very curly for my hometown people would like pat my hair and or beat me up or something for being Armenian <laughs> So anyway, um, that's, that's my yeah, that's a so that's, that's a nutshell. Actually, rough. Yeah, that's well, it's just bad. when you grow up very aware, overly aware of yourself as an outsider or different, it it does something to your head, and maybe that's mm-hmm. why my whole life I've always, you know, I've kind of 
been in this sort of alternate scheme in terms of the work I make and the plays I write and the performances I do. And I'm always playing bad guys in movies and stuff. <laughs> That's my sort of job in life is to be a bad guy. And maybe I am a bad guy. I can't, I'm still I can't smarter t- than you. That was a great clip <laughs> from Under Siege 2, uh, Under Siege 2 with, yeah, Steven with Steven Seagal. Seagal. You were a great bad guy in that. That was so much fun to do. Um, to be a bad guy in a big action movie... Well, even better than that was to be in the movie and then have an opening at Man's Chinese Theater in in Hollywood (laughs) and the red carpet and then go in and then on the screen, you know, it's an old fashioned movie theater. So your face is 40 feet high and it's and then I'm saying those lines, you know, I'm I'm smarter (laughs) than you. I've always been smarter than you. And I always will be smart, whatever it is I say. I have people quote things from the movie to me. I can't remember. I learn a line, and then I don't remember it after I've said it. I mean, the minute I leave the set, it just f- just floats out of my brain. Well, that seems different than what these, like the men inside, when these solos started mm-hmm. coming to you. Like that, that probably, th- those lines of dialogue probably are with you. Well, always. I've done those shows, and I'm going to be doing selections from it tomorrow night at the museum seven seven thirty seven thirty come early because it's a pretty small space the helmet yeah. Stern auditorium yeah well we'll we'll have fun uh, but i i used to do those in fact i was here in, in at umich in um the 90s at the power center i mean i used to wow. tour all the colleges and i would do these solo things so i had done them hundreds of times i did them off broadway for a long time usually usually i did six of these shows so the show would be off broadway for four months or five months or something and then I'd hit the road with it and then about a few years later do another one that wasn't the original plan but that's what happened that was the rhythm it was just I don't know. They worked. I was good at it. I think Andy Warhol once said something about people don't want to do what they're really good at. And I think they do me the doing the second this, best thing. Yeah. So something. I'm writing a history book on uh, about <laughs> World War One as opposed to continuing to get up in front of people and doing these crazy character things that how I do, you, do. How do you decide who you, who you want to bring out, for example, tomorrow at UMA? Well, um, one of the things I'm thinking about is the fact that I really am aware just by being on campus that people don't have a clue what I do. So um, when when I do the stuff in New York and people know that I'm – uh, going to do these characters and stuff, I will often start with a super aggressive, super nasty, obnoxious character. And people just know like, oh, it's sure. Eric doing his thing. If I did that here, I think people would like run out of the theater. So I will try s- it. Oh, they'll get, don't worry, they're going to get the super obnoxious characters. But the very first thing I'm going to do is kind of just come out and pretend that I'm actually a very nice person and then become the super <laughs> obnoxious character. Um, but uh, I just know that some of the characters are kind of – there's one guy who's my favorite guy, and he is a biker who is selling weed to, like, uh, 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 a guy who works on Wall Street. And the whole gimmick with the bit is that the guy, clearly, the Wall Street guy, who you don't see or anything, it's just an empty chair uh, – He's been told, go to this guy's place and you can buy a nickel bag of weed from this biker guy. And he gets he gets pulled into very deep waters. And that's the sort of the plot of the story. <laughs> and it's a lot of fun to play this guy, Red, who was based <laughs> on a real Hells Angels that I, that I had met one time on the street, who saw me. I had a show jacket on that said Sex, Drugs, Rock and Roll on the back. And this biker guy saw me and he said... Hey, you like sex, drugs, rock and roll? I love sex, drugs, rock and roll, man. Hey, get me one of those. You ride? He asked me if I ride, right? 
and like I'm like the last person who would be riding with the Hell's Angels. But at any rate, so then he gave me his card. I don't know what you know about the Hell's Angels, but all Hell's Angels are motor captains or MCs, and they carry cards, and that's and they'll give you their card with their name on it. And his card said Red MC Hell's Angels. I grew up in a town where there were something like the Hell's Angels, so I kind of keep my distance from these guys. But the character was just too cool to leave alone, so Red is one of the longer pieces I do. and um, But the thing about my... Is it like these, 15 minutes? Is it, it's about 10 minutes, yeah. So, and then, there's, then there's, one, there's one about a guy who's like in a recovery group who is... Uh, he's a recovering male, and he's ashamed of his sexual um, urges. Was that Matt Mayer does yes. that one, the recovering male? Yeah, on he's, the Matt Mayer is so great. He's such a funny actor. Um, and I... And it's a funny, and especially here on campus, it'd be cool to do it because it sort of takes the whole sort of things about feminism and things about sexism and sort of turns them on their head. The notion that just existing as a male is shameful because you have a penis and so therefore you're just inherently bad, which I think is sort of the subtext of a lot of things these days. Um, but all of these pieces... When did you write that piece, Eric? Uh, recovering Males, like, from the 90s, I think. Everything seems like it's such a long time ago now. Actually, it's... Well, it's yeah. so old, Recovering Male, that there's nothing in it about the internet, and the guy talks about self-stimulation let's put it that way on the since oh, i've been told to censor myself here today so uh when so he doesn't talk about the it. internet which of course for any young man today is his loving companion um <clears throat> the porn sites and all that stuff uh women don't know about this i had a friend who's like she's like i go how are you and your your husband doing she goes, oh we're we're having a really hard time i'm like why are you having a really hard time she goes well you know joe is I, he he looks at porn on the internet and I wanted to go, whoa, baby, I got news for you. <laughs> Every guy in America is looking at porn on the internet. But of course, people listening to this radio station, all the women will be like, listen, going, no, they don't. My husband doesn't. My <laughs> but, husband okay, never listens to but, watch porn. But let me ask you before we go to the break, is this care? Is she, could she be another character? I never like, play women. I only play people that are like inside me. So the men inside, hence the yeah, first name. Yeah, that was the original the... show. Yeah. But they're all about, but women... they're all about energy. They're all about me just like blasting out and trying to do some they're very technically very very hard to do uh, as an actor like sometimes the language is very complicated and difficult and they all require a lot of energy and focus I basically wrote them originally to see if I could make something that was too hard to do because I was I was very into the punk rock scene and I love the sort of punk aesthetic of Go just too much isn't enough, and humor and awkwardness and intensity uh, and thrashing around. <laughs> this was all on so, stage in one ball. Yeah, I mean, That's I don't Eric know if it's going to be that thrashing around, but it, it is more animated than most things you will see on stage. Let's take sure. a short break and then we'll be back. Everyone, tomorrow, Eric Bogosian will be performing from 100 Monologues at UMA, 7 30 p.m., where you've got living writers. We'll take a short break and be back. Yeah, here I is again, that's me, and there's you. And I dig all you cats out there whipping and wailing and jumping up and down and sucking up that fine juice and patting each other on the back and telling each other who the greatest cat in the world is. Mr. Malenkoff, Mr. Dallenkoff, Mr. Eisenhorn, Woosen, Weezen, Meisen, Woozer, and Mr. Woodhill and Mr. Beachill and Mr. 
Churchill and all them hills, they gonna get it straight. If they can't straighten it, they know a cat that knows a cat that's gonna get it straight. Well, I'm gonna put a cat on you was the sweetest, gonest, wailingest cat that ever stomped on this sweet swinging sphere. And they called you Shaw Cat the Naz. That was a cat's name. He was a carpenter kitty. Now the Naz was a kind of a cat that come on so wild and so sweet and so strong and so witted that when he laid it, wham, it stayed there. Naturally, all the rest of the cat looked to see what he put in down. This is the man look at that cat. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Eric Bogosian is here in the studio, and and the Liz is making a sound good it's, uh, from behind the glass. Eric, so that's not you. That's Can not you me. tell us who the. But that's an important. <laughs> uh, uh, that's somebody who was a very big influence on me. That's Lord Buckley, who did his stuff in the 1950s kind of came to a kind of a sad end because he this stuff was all done live in um, nightclubs, sort of hipster places, and he lost his... You had to have a cabaret card in those days, and because he had been busted for smoking pot, he lost his cabaret license. But Lord Buckley, whatever he sounds like to you as you're listening, was a very white guy who wore a pith helmet on stage and these sort of Salvador Dali mustaches. You can go online and look them up and you can get all, you can download those. That's called the Naz and it's the story about the Nazarene or Jesus, right? And it's in, it's just rhythmically and it's musical and it's a very, very big influence on a number of people, uh, hip hop, but also Lenny Bruce and a big influence on me. There were a lot of guys who were doing stuff in the early 60s and late 50s who are kind of unsung, these very fringe, weirdo entertainers. Brother Theodore was another one, and uh, Lord Buckley, and... um, Dr. Irwin Corey, some of these guys would show up actually on variety shows like Merv Griffin or Mike Douglas in the <laughs> 1960s because, I don't know, people weren't really able to really differentiate. They didn't understand where these guys were coming. They were just weirdos. So let's get these weirdos on. But they're much better than weirdos because their stuff is very complicated and, and, and fun to listen to. Like the Naz is all about... It's like a retelling of the Jesus story, and it's a great storytelling piece. He does another piece. I think it's called The Wheel or The Spinning Wheel or something, and it's all about Mahatma Gandhi. And um, But it's all couched in this very hipster stuff. And one of the things that makes it really great, and which I think makes live theater really great, is that you get in front of an audience and you learn about what it is you're doing as you're doing it because the audience gives you back and that makes the stuff grow this is not just verbal stuff this would be true with music i knew a guy who had this amazing record store years ago where he had all this just all the most fringy fringy stuff there this little tiny store and one day i was in there and i said you got a lot of incredible music here and he said this this isn't music. This is recorded music. Music is when people come together and they listen to somebody sing or play live. And it's true that energy that's in the room, you cannot 
uh, to think that a movie or a TV show has got that energy in it, it doesn't. And something happens. And so these live performances are a great interest to me. And when I did my solo stuff for, you know, a long, long time, I don't really perform anymore. This is thing I'm doing tomorrow night is kind of different um, just because I'm here and I just feel like doing it. Oh, also, I should say that... Um, this uh, this stuff I'm doing tomorrow night at the museum, seven thirty, the museum free, um, is is excerpted from a book called One Hundred Monologues, which came out last year. Because basically last year we were sitting, I just I was bored and I counted all the monologues I had done off Broadway, and it turned out there were a hundred of them. And so Perfect. my publisher said, let's sure let's put out this book. So there's this book, and then I started doing readings at the Labyrinth Theater where I hang out in New York, and. Um, and it was kind of fun, so I thought, okay, we'll do it here too. Um, and how did you decide that that you wanted the hundred monologues dot com to have this project where you're the director, and I think your son is the AD, and you have friends of yours, actors. The, yeah. Do they pick one, or do you ask them to do I, a particular one? I pick one? the monologues. I give them like a choice of one or two, two or three. What? It's another poker story. I, poker okay. is sort of in all my. I have a, I have a game where a lot of actors play, and we were sitting around, and I don't know who was at the table on any given night, Bobby Cannavale or Liev Schreiber or somebody like that, and and the book was coming out, and I said, you know, if would you, what would you think if I like shot you doing it? One of them, because they all these guys are all in their forties, and I'm older than that, and they knew me from their old when they were starting out. And um, somebody said, oh yeah, that'd be a great idea. What I didn't think through was that they're all very high. They were going, they're willing to do it for free for me. But they're all Screen Actors Guild. I had to form a company that's a Screen Actors Guild signatory. And then I had to go raise money and we had to go get the cameras and everything else. But, you know, we've had so much fun uh, making this in 100monologues.com. That's where it is. It's easy to find. It's free. All these actors have volunteered their time and their energy to this thing. Um, But we have a good time doing them. And... You know, one of the things about the arts is that you come in because you're digging it, right? You're having a blast. This is this really fun thing. I'd love to do this for the rest of my life. And then it becomes like a profession, and that's good, too. You get good at it. But sometimes it's a little too much a profession or too much about agents and too much about money. And all of these guys are very successful. And, um, well, not every one of them, but they they are a great bunch of actors. And when they come into and we shoot these things... It's like we we go back to the time when we were goofing around. Uh, Marin Ireland is on this. I mean, there's so many people doing fun stuff on here, but like Marin is, uh, she's a very serious upcoming actress. You've seen her in a lot of things. She's just so intense. She works so hard. And I took a the bit was about a guy, a Greek diner owner who's yelling at this kid who works for him. And I switched it over so it would be a woman Greek diner. Like, there's always a woman and there's always a guy, right? And uh, she just took to it like a duck to water. And she's so funny doing the bit. And Marin doesn't do anything halfway. So uh, I think she has her own TV show now on one of the kids. Everybody has their own TV. No, I shouldn't say everybody. But she has her own TV show on cable right now, this Marin Island. Anyway... Oh, I forgot uh, what we were talking well, about. Well, speaking of uh, other things, speaking of movies. What was in those movies, brownies you gave me before we sat down? <laughs> wink, wink. <laughs> now. <laughs> but um, another big thing is happening, another event. So not TV, but movies. Your your um, mall is yes. called, your screenplay mall. Yeah. Play. Yeah, about, about 12 years ago or 15 years ago, 
I started writing novels. Oh, novels, yes. And I, my first novel was called Mall. I think it came out around 2000. And um, we've got perforated hearts. That's the latest is, is one. Yeah, on that's pretty fun. Um, so Mall, which is about a speed freak who decides to shoot up the local shopping mall. And what happens is there's a bunch of kids at the food court when this all starts to happen. And the whole story kind of follows one of them who gets wrapped up in all this crazy. There's a lot of crazy stuff going on. It's kind of what you call a pinwheel narrative. So there's different people at the mall and we follow all of them. That's what happens in the book. Same thing happens in the movie. Um, Joe Hahn has directed the movie. He's a member of Linkin Park. And so there's Linkin Park movie uh, music to the movie as well. And the Green Arts uh, group here at the, at the university has gotten the distributor. The movie's just coming out now. It's, I think it's coming out in two weeks. They've gotten a copy that's going to be here at the Michigan uh, Theater on Monday night at 7.15. If you're in the theater department or if you're in the um, screen department, I think you can get a voucher and get in for free. But you should come by. Look, if you can't, if you need to come in for free and you don't have the money, find me and I'll pay your admission. But um, it's going to be kind of interesting because I haven't seen this movie. I, first of all, I've only seen like the rawest cut of the movie. I haven't really seen it. I haven't seen it finished. I haven't seen it in front of an audience. It's a very raw movie. It's got some nasty stuff in it. Vincent D'Onofrio is in it and a bunch of other great actors. And um, so that's what happens. It's a low-budge movie, uh, but it's... Um, it's it's all that stuff. So, it's it's certainly a fun movie. And, and it's going to have a, a debut in Ann Arbor. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. 7, you can, you can see it before anybody. You can like be one of those people who writes on the blogs and <laughs> says, I hate this movie. It was the biggest waste of time I ever... But or loved it. I love this movie. <laughs> so is it before... Bogosian's a genius. <laughs> exactly. I love... Who's, who is he anyway? <laughs> well, you know what... Let's talk for briefly about talk radio because that's sure. that's the 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 so like your sh- a solo show. That it wasn't you did. a solo show. It was it, a play. A play. A they play. Keep call- There's a lot of stuff that says it was a solo show, but it wasn't a it's solo con- show. I've it seen was a both play. out there. Yeah, no, it was a play. It was a full scale play. In fact, they did it on Broadway just a couple, few years ago with Liev, and he played the part that I played in it. But we did it at the public theater, and then. Um, Ed Pressman got Oliver Stone to come by, and a year later we were shooting the movie of it. It was kind of intense. What's it like to see it go from the stage to the screen? And it's because it's transformed, isn't it? And it, in some ways you're saying that the experience of seeing movies and TVs, it's flattening somehow. There's not that energy of the theater, but there's a lot of intensity in talk radio. Well, I just saw it. it to, be, to be, I mean... I would love to give myself credit where there isn't any credit due, but um, this is an unusual thing because I did the show so many times that once it was couched in a kind of movie world, that performance was still in there uh, that I had really honed, and, um, and, and I was committed to making it as intense as possible. I had learned from earlier ventures into movie world that the notion that a stage actor should somehow you know, make it smaller or soften it up for the screen is baloney. I did the same performance in the 
in the movie that I did on stage. And, um, and then I brought some of the people who were in the stage version came and did the movie as well, including, I think, a brother of somebody who works here at the university, Zach Grenier, but also... Arwolf's brother. Yeah. Arwolf, Arwolf. <laughs> and because um, Zach was in the original production, um, uh, John McGinley, who people know from Scrubs, uh, who was in the play version, Michael Wincott, who plays the kid. So fortunately, Oliver was was ready to keep all these guys in, and we got to make this really crazy. Alec Baldwin is in this movie as a very young, very handsome young man. Some people may not realize it, but he was once gorgeous, and uh, I was also once gorgeous. Um, you still are. I wasn't as I wasn't as gorgeous as Alec. <laughs> I have to be honest. He has Alec, a lot of hair in that film too. Yes, like very, it's that, the style of the time, hair. right? Yeah. <laughs> Well, Alec was doing a lot of independent movies at that time, but I remember working with him and and thinking, my God, this guy is so good looking. I, <laughs> I could just start making out with him right now. He was a lot of fun to work with. Um, at any rate, the, it was a very intense experience. It was really great. We Are we getting signals through the glass? No? Yes. Um, the movie was shot. Uh, in 25 days, I was the I had written the movie, I'd written the play, and I was in every scene. And when I mean, they had to scrape me off the floor, and we were done doing oh. it. But um, it was it, it was cool. It went. We went and won the Berlin Film Festival afterwards with it. And um, it's going and back it's still to around. Where, where you had the Ricky show, the Ricky Paul show. The Ricky show. Paul show. Yeah, Ricky Paul is just was one of my first most obnoxious guys. That was back in the punk days because everybody was getting on stage in clubs and trying to be as obnoxious as possible. And I don't sing so although maybe that wasn't really an issue in the punk days but so I created this guy in the late 70s called Ricky Paul and I actually toured him as far as Germany and on stage in Germany I did Sig Heil the audience and goose step around the stage which definitely got everybody kind of wound up this is in the days when people used to throw bottles and spit and fight and uh, you know when you're 26 or something that's a lot of fun um you know, it's it's funny because it seems like chaos, but it's not chaos. It's very orderly chaos, like the, the mosh pit or whatever. I had seen, actually saw Black Flag here in Detroit in 82, and I remember being in the mosh pit and thinking, if, you know, anything could happen. No, anything can't happen. It, we all understand the rules of this game. We're going to shove contract. each other as hard <laughs> as we can, but, you know, you can't bring out a knife or anything like that. So the whole punk scene was, you know, it was really high energy. And, um, and I've always thought it was very smart. I mean, my friends from those days that came out of there, people like Sonic Youth were, you know, just amazing. And it was, a. Uh, I got to be around a, a very exciting art world in the late um, in the mid '80s, early '80s, a scene that where Sonic Youth was doing their thing, and Cindy Sherman was making her photographs, and we were all part of this this world together. And I was like the performance guy, um, and uh, everything was about like being imaginative and being energetic and clubbing a lot, um, and it was a lot of fun. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be back today. Eric Bogosian is here. Um, I'm T Hetzel. You've got Living Writers right back. <laughs>
Scott Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Eric Bogosian is here in the studio. Um, we just had one of, of, of – you were doing some air guitar, I'm going to say. little air guitar. <laughs> Shove. What a, well, they were one of the great sub-pop bands, right? And sub-pop was just genius and, you know, they, uh, so much great stuff. Kurt Cobain and those guys came out of there and – I don't know. I, yeah, I mean, thank every, every, for sub pop, actually. Uh. It's kind of a funny thing, you know, because I was a child of the 60s, so I had a whole um, identity with a time that had to do with, like, Hendrix and stuff like that. I mean, I saw Hendrix in a club that was so small that, you know, we were actually got up on stage with him while he was playing, which I know is impossible to imagine these days. I saw, him in the, I saw Led Zeppelin in a club that was so small, I patted Jimmy Page on the back as he was going back to the dressing room. So that's a million years ago. And when... All those guys died, um, not all, not Jimmy Page, obviously, but Hendrix and Morrison, and there were all these heroes of mine, and I was a, still in high school, and they were gone. I just stopped listening to music. And in the late 70s, when the punk scene, people were saying, punk this, punk that, and I was like, yeah, really? I don't know. That's not doesn't look good to me. And then I heard... Uh, the Sex Pistols album, and I was like, this is what punk is? And then, of course, punk was in the late 70s, but then it went all the way to this other punk, the 90s punk. And um, I don't know. I just, I think every, to make great work, it's, you've got to take big chances. And all of these guys were really throwing themselves out there. They weren't afraid of, they were like unbalanced. And being unbalanced means taking risks and being awkward and being vulnerable and not being afraid to like kind of throw it all out there. And uh, that was a really important part of why I made the things I made, the solo stuff. I also, you know, I wrote this play, Talk Radio, I wrote the play Suburbia. Um, I, I also don't like to do this. I mean, maybe I would like to do the same thing all the time if they paid me a billion dollars yeah. to do it. But but even even my experience on Law & Order, it was like, that was great for what it was or the experience in the Seagal movie, but it had its moment, its time. And then when I did it, it's time to do some other things. So, you know, let's write a history book about Armenian assassins. And that's what the next thing was. Um, I I don't know. That's just, that's just a way I, I see making work as a life thing. It's not about how to, I'm doing this because I want to be, it's not even therapy or anything. It's it, it's it's just trying to live as completely and fully as possible, as opposed to I want to make a lot of money. Uh, I've made a lot of money, or um, I want to be have my name in the paper, which I had, and now I'm not so well known. But that's not really the point. The point is, I get this much time here, and how do I get to live as large as possible? So you never know which way that you know. One thing you finish it, and then it suggests another direction to the next thing, and then it's it's a project, and it just keeps going. I never even really understood until a, just a few years ago why I like to act so much. And I thought that it was because I liked the applause, because being a kind of a codependent person to have an audience say, we love you. You remember that <laughs> Sally Fields thing? You, you love me. You really love me. But it's because I love pretending to be other people. And I think that's just sort of magical. And I'm good at it. So that's what I ended up doing. I think the same can be said about sports and, and pretty much anything, if you dive in as completely and fully and take risks, then um, it it makes you more alive. 
That's you just where is this? Where am I going to land on my feet or am I going to land on my face? You just don't know. And it's exciting. So I don't know what got me on that, but we're ta- well, I've been doing a lot of talking about my work here on this campus, and I'm getting tired of hearing my own voice about it. But, well, but it also seems that there's a, a, a huge energy about it when you're talking about the work and what it is that you because this this is what you believe like what you make is who you are well i feel like i'm part of a community too so i'm not just making my stuff i get really excited about other people's stuff i wouldn't even care if i just stop making stuff and other people are doing great stuff and i can go to see wait for example you said you wanted me i might as well mention this we were talking before but my wife is directing the new susan laurie parks joe bonnie joe bonnie yes i'm sorry i should say your name joe bonnie is directing the new uh uh, susan laurie parks play uh at the public theater in new york it's going to open i think the day i get back october 28th but it's running now and it's brilliant and it's it's exciting to see uh, somebody is as brilliant as Susan Laurie really uh, playing her full game. And it's and it's sometimes it's hard for artists to find that spot because, you know, you ever know when you're going to get like a review or something, it's going to say bad things about you and it makes you feel bad. But um, this is a brilliant play. Uh, I, I think it's if, not, if it's one of her best plays. If, if It's called uh, Father Comes Home from the War, and it's about um, – a slave uh, in the Civil War who is who goes to war with his with his master. It's pretty great. Uh, at any rate, um, I'm the guy in the audience that's laughing the loudest. I'm the guy <laughs> clapping the hardest, and I like that. I I, I just uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. They, well, thank goodness. End for of you. sentence. Thank goodness for you, Eric. <laughs> well, it seems also when when I'm thinking about the like tomorrow, how you're going to be at UMA at seven thirty. Um, you know the amount of energy, like how like will you? It seems like that. Do you take? Like, how do you work up to it? And then do you take days well, to recover? Well, this or isn't is a full something? performance because uh, that would require being in a theater with lighting and everything else. So we call it a reading. And, and okay. it's great to call it something and then go beyond and break the boundaries of it when I do it. Um, I'm just naturally energetic. If you put me in front of an audience, it will definitely not be a reading on any normal sense of a reading. First of all, I won't be reading most of the time. But... Um, I don't know. I got I got good at this, and I, when I first started out, I used to warm up for hours before the show, and I would run my lines ninety million times and drive myself crazy. But um, I, I, I'm relaxed about it now, and you I go out, and I, I also know stuff. I mean, it's just like being a fielder in baseball or something. After you've done a million double plays, you know how to. It just comes to you. You don't think about it. And I have a feeling about the audience. Now, given this is a funny little theater, it's not even a theater. It's have a little you, auditorium. Have you seen the space? Yeah. yeah. How yeah. will that change? Because we've been talking about the live performance. How will it? I've change played it? so many different places over the years. I just adjust automatically to the kind of place it is. It's a little vulnerable to be in an auditorium type place because the lighting isn't as. The audience can't like hide out and and ice can see everybody but that's okay i mean i've played everything i've played clubs i've played um little tiny tiny i played a squat in amsterdam one time which was just like eight kids with mohawks who were squatting this building and they wanted a performance (laughs) so i came and i did it and i've also played the music video awards and that was six thousand people in the audience and six million people watching on tv i can't say that that was one of my most successful performances because everybody was like who is this guy and when is Madonna coming on? But it was, uh, again, um, 
it's exciting to have that experience. I was introducing two live crew, by the oh, way. Nice. How how great was that? Had something to do with freedom of speech or something. Because uh, they had been arrested for uh-huh. dirty lyrics in Florida or something. Oh, oh yeah, okay. That was a long, long that time was. ago. Yeah. yeah. I feel so ancient. Everything <laughs> is like a long time ago. Um, so at any rate. Um, yeah, tomorrow will be fun. I mean, you just got to – I, I hate to keep bringing up poker all the time, but you can only play the cards <laughs> as they lie. And when you walk into a theater, you got to play that hand of what that is. What is that theater? I was on Broadway uh, for like a year, a couple of years ago with Laura Linney, and uh, I did a play called Time Stand Still, and it was a blast. And I thought I would have stage fright and stuff, but I walked out and it was – it was just so much fun. I didn't ever think about having stage fright. Oh, Alicia Silverstone was my girlfriend in the mo- in the play. That's as was, nice. And then later, Christina Ricci. So I got to kiss Alicia Silverstone and Christina Ricci every night on stage. Don't tell them that I thought about that fact, but I did. <laughs> not a bad run. Not a bad run, Eric. It was for a great you play. So, and you've said, we're watching my world of the imagination, not the real world, about being on stage like these when you perform. Like the real world of the imagination. Yours. Yeah, I don't believe in reality. So um, yeah. I think it's all about like contrivance and everything. And one of the amazing things that happens in theater is that the audience knows that what they're looking at is fake and yet they treat it like it's real. And it goes right into some core inside their brain that says, this is real. Think about it as if it's real. Like, like your pulse can quicken or you can get scared or whatever it is that happens. And I think that's just – that's amazing. When, when, when One of the reasons why I got all these guys together on the 100 Monologues uh, site is that they are just amazing actors and uh, they're, most of them are character actors and you don't usually see character actors doing extended pieces. Mm-hmm. And they are so delicious to watch. It's great to mm-hmm. see them do a three-minute or five-minute piece because they've made it that they're inside them then the men are inside them. yeah they yeah, are really they are... yeah these are guys that are i mean a guy like michael stuhlbarg or michael shannon are there is no one no one who does it better than these guys and they are totally believable i don't know that people understand that this is there's a craft to all of this but well there I, it is i there is a craft mm-hmm. <laughs> and i can't i can't wait to see tomorrow what happens at uma at seven thirty. Okay. yeah come on PM. down get and, there a little early i guess i don't know if there'll be a lot of people or not or and then also monday um at the michigan theater to see the, the debut of mall the right. film mall okay yeah. eric thank you so much for talking thanks with for me having today. me t it's Let's, a real pleasure well if you'll come back we'll talk again about come back. Um, operation nemesis yeah in oh. the spring i'll be back Thanks, Eric. Thank you. You've been listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. This is the first love.
You are listening to the Daily Sports Report on 88.3 WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. You're listening to the Daily Sports Report on WCBN FM Ann 